welcome to another episode of the Tax Chick Podcast. So today I'm having a repeat guest on. I'm so excited. Sophie Verge uh, was one of my very first guests on the first season of the podcast. I didn't know her at all. She took a chance on me and she came on as a guest and we've sort of become internet friends ever since. And recently we connected again and decided we wanted to collaborate on another episode because we had lots more that we wanted to say. So today's episode is all on tax litigation, which is again, the topic that is very close and dear to my heart. Um, If you're listening to this and if you haven't yet had a chance to listen to the original episode, that Sophie and I did back in season one. You might want to check that one out. And then also I released an episode uh, in March of this year with Dean Blatchford uh, where we talked a bit about some other tax litigation topics. We talked about some audit flags and things that you can do to prevent them. And so I think those topics are actually quite helpful as an additional supplement to what Sophie and I are going to be talking about today. A lot of the questions that I get from clients, and and I know Sophie has come across this as well, involve the practical aspects of tax litigation. So when you're audited, what do you do? Uh, How do you appeal? What are some of the tips and tricks? What is a book and record? Uh, What can you provide and not provide? So we thought we would take that approach to this episode as opposed to talking about the process itself. We've actually come up with three key topics. And we want to address the practicalities of the tax litigation process. So we're going to talk first about when CRA contacts you, so what that looks like. How will they contact you? Phone, email, letter. Uh, what is it? What are the things you can do to protect yourself and know whether it's a scam or whether it's legitimate communication? Um, we'll also talk about the difference between an audit and just a simple request for information because those two things are very different. And so it's important to know what you've received. We're then going to talk about how you communicate back to CRA. So how do you kind of assemble your team and and what do you say back and what do you have to give? How do you document what you've given? Uh, What is the process for filing things electronically uh, versus in paper versus by fax and what some of the options are for you? And then finally, we're going to talk about the different ways that an audit or a request for information can end. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to end in you owing a bunch of money. There are other options and other ways that it can end. And so we're going to talk about those different options and also talk about the potential for settlement at the audit stage. And so that's the big topics we're going to talk about today. But before we dive in um, to this conversation with my fabulous guest, I just want to provide a little bit of background information about Sophie. So Sophie is a tax partner with Bennett Jones LLP in Calgary. She has a Bachelor of Commerce degree from McGill University, and her law degree is from the University of Manitoba. She helps private and public corporations manage their tax controversies and formulate litigation strategies. She handles all aspects of the tax dispute resolution process and advocates complex written and oral legal positions for appearances before the Court of Queen's Bench, the Tax Court of Canada, the Federal Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court of Canada. In addition to engaging in negotiations with Canada Revenue Agency and Department of Justice, Sophie also provides advice on Canada Revenue Agency corporate audits and works with her clients to complete the audit process. She has been engaged on a wide array of tax matters, including transfer pricing, international taxation, and corporate reorganizations. 
Sophie regularly writes and speaks on tax matters and is a member of the Canadian Bar Association, the Calgary Bar Association, the Canadian Tax Foundation, the Canadian Petroleum Tax Society, the Association of Women Lawyers, and the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers. And she is also fluent in both English and French. Although today we are chatting in English. (laughs) Sophie is a fellow tax chick and I just, I had so much fun chatting with her again today. We both really love what we do and I think that comes through in our conversation. We're very passionate about advocating on behalf of our clients in Canada Revenue Agency situations and so I, I really am excited to share this conversation with you. So without further ado, on to the episode. Well, welcome, Sophie. You are a repeat customer to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you back again. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. So you were one of my very first guests. You were part of the initial season and we did a great episode on tax litigation and we talked about um, taking a tax litigation matter all the way sort of from audit all the way through to the Tax Court of Canada. And so if anyone's listening to this and have not caught the original episode, um, take a peek back at that because it, it was a great one. Uh, but then you volunteered to come back again, which was really awesome because there was so many more topics that we wanted to cover. And so today we're going to dive back into our favorite discussion, which is tax litigation issues. But we thought we would tackle things a little bit differently this time. So this time we want to provide a bit of practical advice and a bit of a practical overview for people of, of some of the things you should keep in mind when you're when you're contacting CRA or CRA is contacting you. So we, we have three topics we're going to try to tackle. And our first one deals with, well, if CRA is contacting you, what are the different ways that they might contact you? And what are the different types of documents you might get from them? Then we're going to jump into, well, how do you give information back to CRA? So things to keep in mind if you're being audited and you're providing information, um, talking a bit about electronic submissions. And then finally, we want to talk a bit about resolving disputes with CRA because you and I both um, are huge proponents of trying to settle or resolve matters for our clients if we can. And so talking about when an audit ends, what does that mean? What are the potential things that can come out of an audit? And then what does settlement look like? So that's our three topics. Are, are you ready to dive in, Sophie? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised though, Amanda, if just like last time we, we run out of time, as, as you know, and as your listeners probably know, these things are pretty loaded. So but let's get to it and see how much we can cover. Awesome. Awesome. Well, then let's start with topic number one. Um, sort of this idea of CRA is contacting you. And I wonder if we should talk about first the different ways that CRA is now reaching out and maybe tying some of that into some of the scams or some of the concerns that people have that they might be getting not legitimate communication from CRA. So, I mean, maybe we can start there. Yeah, I think I think that's a good place to start. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty around this for Canadians, because um, not everybody has had um, experience with the CRA. And even if they have, they don't know um, what to expect. And I think that when people get contacted by someone who is purporting to be the CRA, people's reaction is normally to, you know, fear or some type of panic response just because there's this feeling of being in trouble. And that's not necessarily the case. As we all know, CRA does 
you know, random audits, targeted audits. So it just depends on where you're falling into the spectrum on that point. But I think that um, the one thing I always tell my clients and, and you and I have different client bases. So I think it'd be interesting to hear how CRA has changed and evolved their communication approach for um, your clients and your experience. For us, it's still very much, um, there is always letter correspondence. So CRA is not calling and talking to the first person that answered the phone saying, we need this, that, and the other thing. That does not occur. So I think if there's anybody that receives a call from purportedly a CRA agent and that agent is asking for information right off the bat, that does not occur. Well, and it's actually really great that you mentioned we have different client bases because I think we'll be able to provide a really broad spectrum of advice in this in this particular episode. I mean, you're working with really large institutionalized clients. Um, I'm working with small business owners, um, private corporations, and individuals. And so I do think there is a bit of a difference, like you've identified, in sort of how CRE is reaching out. And I am actually getting clients that are are getting phone calls from CRA. And okay. I, I like you have the same reaction of it's quite terrifying because you don't know if it's legitimate because we're also mm-hmm. getting all these scam calls right now. Um, so what I've been telling my clients is if you get a phone call from CRA, ask for an agent number or an agent ID, and then you can, you can simply indicate you're going to phone back and verify identity. And then you can phone the general inquiries line ask about if this agent's name and agent ID works there and and where they work, and you can get that verified. And that's a great way of giving you protection. You're not going to get in trouble with CRA for asking for that, but it's kind of an extra added step. And and you always have the right to ask for something in writing. So again, like you, Sophie, I I always say to the clients, if you don't have a letter, ask for a letter. Mm -hmm. Then you have specifics as to what they're looking for and who's contacting you. But we are seeing, uh, we are seeing some phone calls. We are not seeing emails and, and I don't think anyone is seeing emails. So one of the big things to keep in mind is if you get an email from CRA that's asking for information that is not a legitimate email. <laughs> you you might get an email saying you have a new notice up on your online account with Canada Revenue Agency, but there should never be an email that asks you in the content of the email for information directly. Yes, yeah, I echo that, those thoughts. We we have seen a little bit though of electronic mail through the Canada Post system. Oh, so what you what happens is that uh, you get an email from Canada Post saying you have an electronic uh, piece of mail, mm-hmm. and then you're prompted to go to the Canada Post website. Um, you have to start up a profile with them, and then you can get access to that mail. But that mail is a letter, so no okay. different than physical mail, but it's electronic mail of a scan of a letter. Or not a scan, but a PDF of a letter um, okay. that indicates what's going on um, or what, what they're asking for or what have you. So no different though, than, than this concept of get, of, of having things in writing. We, I, our clients haven't experienced phone calls where a CRA agent will jump right in and start asking questions. But I think if that were to occur, I think that your advice is exactly on point to say, uh, to double check by calling back. And then also to say, you know, thanks for the phone call. I'll look forward to receiving a letter outlining exactly what it is that you're looking for. Absolutely. And we can put in the show notes, the phone numbers uh, for business inquiries and personal inquiries at CRA um, if you don't have access to those um, at Easy Grab. So so definitely different ways that we're now getting contacted um, 
versus the way things used to be. And and so not even not only do we have different mediums for contact, but we also have different things that are being asked for. And I know Sophie, you brought up that we should be chatting about the difference between an audit and a request for information. And I'm noticing this is starting to pop up a ton, especially post-tax season, that mm. I've got a whole bunch of clients that are receiving these requests for information letters, and they are in complete panic because they think they're in the midst of an audit. And so perhaps we can address the difference between these two types of communication. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think right off the bat, I would say both will require the taxpayer to provide information one way or another. It's just a question of, I think, and, and Amanda, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts of the, of sort of the finite um, aspects of it. So a request for information can be one, one document, one set of documents, um, documents relating to a transaction, something like that. Whereas an audit will typically be, um, for the tax year that the taxpayer is in, not not always, but typically, or you know, trust accounts, GST payroll, or something like that, um, and they can be targeted or random as well. So if if the CRA is asking for a request for information, and I, I guess I should say both are provided for under the Income Tax Act, so the CRA has very broad powers. Um, mm-hmm. The ministerial par- powers under the Income Tax Act, as you know, are very broad. So. Generally speaking, the CRA does have the right to ask for quite a wide breadth of information. Um, And so it's just a question of through the information request or the audit, you can kind of, don't you find, you can kind of identify where the CRA is going with this and what they're really interested in? Yeah, I think that's a great way to distinguish because, I mean, for an example, a request for information might be that let's say on your tax return, um, you have claimed the sale of a residence or a sale of a property. Well, you might get a letter following your tax return that says, please provide us with the documents to support the numbers that you reported in your tax return because you Mm -hmm. can't attach all that stuff to your tax return. So even though you Mm -hmm. might have had it all there and gave it all to your accountant, it doesn't end up going to CRA. They just see the final numbers. Um, So that would be an example of a request for information. It's like a verification process. And I know on the private company side and on the individual side, we're seeing a ton of those right now for any of the COVID pandemic related government subsidies. I don't know if you're Mm -hmm. seeing that in the larger scale, but we're seeing quite a few of those come through versus an audit where I'm not going to say it's a fishing expedition because I hate to use that phrase, but it's more just, you know, we've opened up this year or this particular account and we want to look at a whole bunch of things. And so they'll ask you for this big, long list of things usually. And it will literally say, you know, this is an audit letter. You've been audited for this period of time. Versus a request for information will usually say request for information. So usually the document is identified based on what it is, mostly. They're trying to get a bit clearer in their communication. Yeah. And I think for both for both types of information requests, I guess if I can use those terms broadly, the there's I think there's a a list of questions that should arise in the taxpayer's mind right from the onset. So what year did the transaction occur or what year is being audited? What year did the reassessment come in or notice of assessment? Um, Is there a statute of limitations applicable here? And, and, you know, generally, you know, in broad strokes, it's about three years for a regular taxpayer, as you know, 
Um, and some of those things can kind of allow, I, I found as talking through with some of my clients, when you, when you have a little bit more control over the process, there's less of a fear factor. And so understanding, okay, this is what's happening. These are the limitations involved. These are the years involved. These are the tax returns. These are my filings. So right off the bat, and I'm kind of jumping ahead, Amanda, is, no, this is, perfect. is how to deal with it, is how to deal with the request for info, which I guess is the next, um, the next tranche of our discussion. But really thinking about, okay, how can I control the information flow? And part of that is just really establishing from the beginning what's the lay of the land here? What is the transaction? What is the year? What is the statute of limitations? Very base level information so that then you can approach it a bit more systematically. I, I love that. And it's a perfect segue to our next discussion, which is now you've gotten the correspondence, what do you do um, in terms mm-hmm. of responding back? And I, I've often said to my clients, knowledge is power. And so if you feel like you you have control over what's coming into you, it helps to control your response going back out. So um, again, for people listening to this that are sort of filing their own returns or, or are not working with a professional on a regular basis, typically CRA is allowed to go back a period of three years. And that three years is calculated from the date that you receive your notice of assessment, which is the document you get after you file your tax return. So if you've never filed a tax return, arguably that limitation period never starts. And for GST accounts, they can usually go back four years. Again, similar type of time frame. It's calculated from the notice of assessment. There is an ability though. So if you see, if you look at the date and it's past that and you think, oh, well, they're hooped. Um, there is an ability for CRA to go back further, but they have to show something in order to get back further. It doesn't stop them from gathering documentation from you, but before they can be successful in an assessment, they have to show that you've misrepresented or there's various categories they have to fit under. So we do see audits going back farther than that time period, but it's helpful to know what the cutoff dates are because then you kind of know what you're dealing with. So that's a great a great starting point. And I guess once once you figured that out, what what would be the next sort of steps or or tips that you would provide your clients uh, once they've kind of got over that initial hurdle? I think that when any kind of request for information comes in, it's it's really quite advisable to kind of gather the troops of the taxpayer. So assuming that it's a, a corporation, either large or small, um, f- for a moment, you'd sort of say, okay, who's going to be heading up this information request or audit? Um, have a chat with them and kind of figure out what are the details here? What are we what are we dealing with? You know, if we're dealing in a particular year, let's talk about the filing. Let's talk about some of your tax positions and who is going to be the team that's assembled to deal with this. And it could be, you know, in a large corporation, it's, it's a big team. In a smaller corp, it could be one or two people. Um, there is case law that indicates that the CRA can interview various employees of the corporation. So you've got to really be mindful of making sure that everybody in the team is is mindful of what's going on. Um, and and as, as the advisor figuring out what's happening now, as we know, not all taxpayers have advisors at this stage or any stage. And so if a taxpayer is dealing with this on their own, it's it's a question of giving enough of a a base for the CRA to understand what it is that happened in this year or this transaction. And it's not about less information is not more information. You know, 
<laughs> enough information is enough information. So there's really no benefit to kind of hiding information. What the benefit is, is to, is to develop a, a sort of an arsenal of information that allows the CRA to really understand what they're inquiring about, whether it's a year or a transaction um, and, and taking, being very mindful in this information gathering stage. So at this stage, you said, you know, what do you do? And before you're even dealing with the CRA in terms of your answers, you really need to be mindful at this stage, because this is going to be the set of facts that then gets transferred onto the CRA. And then that makes it into your pleadings all the way down the road. If, if this ends up going to litigation. So being really, really deliberate at that stage, I think is important. And, being mindful of privilege um, as well. I think it's really tricky because, again, CRA comes knocking. There's a propensity to either overshare, undershare, not you know, panic. So there's no real look into what are these documents? Is there pri privilege attached to them? And, and being very, very protective of that privilege. And when I say privilege, I mean solicitor-client privilege. That, that's a great way to describe it. And I think this idea of rallying the team, I mean, you and I have you and I have experienced this on the back end where we didn't get involved until, say, the Tax Court of Canada stage. And we're now reading interview questions and responses from our clients that are, are now forming the facts that we have to argue against. And it's not that there that there's a lie or that there's, you know, wrong information, but there might be inconsistent information or people just speak off the cuff. Mm -hmm. um, anytime I see the words I think or maybe, I get really nervous because we should never be using those phrases when we're responding to CRA. We mm -hmm. either know or we need to go and look into it. It's not think mm -hmm. or maybe. And so it's very important, even at these early stages, to figure out who is going to be doing the speaking. And is that person, do they actually have the knowledge that they need to, to properly speak? And making sure there's a consistent message that no one's just having a chat off the cuff. This is serious. It's important. And so let's make sure the, that the right people are involved. And as you said, yes, CRA can interview others, but at least if we've got some consistency in terms of the submissions, that helps. Um, so definitely a, a very important important first step. And I guess in terms of the the gathering of the documentation and, and this idea of, of privilege and, and what we can give and what we can't give... I wonder if we should talk a bit about, you know, what's a book and record? Um, what traditionally are the red flags that you want to take a pause and think, hmm, before I give this, um, what should I be kind of worried about? Maybe we can talk a bit about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think books and records are almost everything. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that's what makes it so tricky is that, as I said, the CRA has very, very broad powers and they can ask for, I think the language is anything relating to the assessment or collection of income tax or something like that. I think like it that. is something like that. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think it's tricky now if, if you don't have your books and records in order or ready or, you know, when you're going through them, you're noticing deficiencies those are those are all a bit of a red flag. So if you're, let me put that in into an example. If the CRA is asked for your general ledger for the, a certain year and you haven't kept it or it's deficient, then if you give it to the CRA without an explanation, because at that stage, it is what it is. The facts are what they are. Now, 
taxpayers have all kinds of things going on in their lives and businesses that create deficiencies in bookkeeping. I, I think that that's commonly known. The CRA is not is is going to understand that as long as there is a dialogue that occurs along with those deficient records. Mm-hmm. So I think that at the stage of an audit, it's a bit tough to go back and rectify or whatever, but it's actually very easy to say, here is my general ledger. You will notice this, this, and this, and this is why this is the case, as opposed to here's my general ledger. I'm not going to say anything and you figure it out and then draw an adverse inference because I haven't given you any kind of reasoning for it. Yes. So that doesn't quite answer your question, Amanda. I think I digressed a little bit, but... But no, I think that's an excellent example because so often i that's part of the panic is that people think, well, I'm not ready or I don't have this done and oh no. And so maybe if I just throw it all at Syria, they won't notice. And and it's Mm -hmm. it's like, it's okay. You just need to explain it. And so I I agree with you. I mean, books and records is pretty much everything. And it's been expanded to include things like metadata, whatever Mm -hmm. the heck that is. And (laughs) and I mean, previous versions of planning memos. And uh, I mean, it's quite, quite broad. But I think as a starting point, we almost go back to the advice, Sophie, that you gave earlier, which is, well, what is the specifics of the request? What is the time frame? What is the transaction? So if they're auditing the 2016 tax year, well, you don't need to give them stuff from 2017. You only need mm-hmm. to give them what they've asked for for 2016. And if they're auditing taxpayer ABC company, well, you only need to give them documents for ABC company. Um, you don't have to give them general ledgers and other information from XYZ company. So it's really making sure that you you very carefully read the request. It's almost like writing an exam, like a like it feels like a law school exam or a university exam, where you just have to read the question and make sure you're only answering the question that's being asked. And then you had raised the very important point of solicitor client privilege. So I don't know if you maybe want to address what the heck that is and and how we can kind of look out for it in our documents. Yes, absolutely. I think it's it's a huge topic of discussion at least these days in my in sort of my world because I think we're starting to be a little bit more mindful of privilege at the onset. So when a structure is being put together, when a plan, when a tax plan is being carried out, we are, as as dispute resolution lawyers, tax dispute resolution lawyers, we are starting to now consult on the planning side of the deal to say, these are mm-hmm. the things you need to be mindful for, because in the event that this does get audited, you will want to preserve privilege on some of these communications, rightly so, because they're with your lawyer or they involve your lawyer. And so that's sort of just a little piece of information. But to answer your question, in a broad sense, solicitor-client privilege attaches to solicitor work product. So when you retain a lawyer, when you when you as a taxpayer retain a lawyer, all of the discussions that are had with the view of giving legal advice are privileged such that they are confidential from any party. Uh, that asks for it, whether legally or through some other mechanism of of administration. And the policy behind this is that there is such a high value associated with people getting advice, uh, being transparent in what they're doing, and being responsible by getting advice. And so that's kind of the general policy, I would say, behind solicitor-client privilege. And so when that you mentioned planning memos. So that translates more practically in 
let's say the CRA issues a request for information on a transaction that a corporation has taken, part of that transaction might have included tax planning with your lawyer and your accountant. Um, And I note that privilege doesn't attach to accounting documents. It's only legal documents. And now there are nuances to that where lawyers and accountants are working together and, and producing work product. The, the risk is, is that if you disclose that at the onset or at any point in the audit, there is an implied or express waiver of privilege. And so, and then there's yet another nuance to that, which is whether it's a, it's just an individual document or a general waiver of privilege. So it gets quite, it, you know, it gets quite nuanced, but the point is, is that people have the right to keep confidentiality as it relates to those documents that where legal advice was involved. And so being very mindful of that at the onset just allows you to carve out a group of documents that you know you have privilege over and it doesn't go anywhere. That That's a great, a great example. And I like the fact that you brought in the discussion about well, at the front end, when we're actually doing the planning, now all of a sudden us as tax litigation lawyers are getting involved. And I've noticed that happening at my firm as well, because you almost have to start thinking about the back end when you're working on the front end. And I think if you're a client and you're listening to this, the privilege is yours to lose. The privilege belongs to you. It doesn't belong to Sophie or to me. It belongs to you. And so when you're interacting with your lawyer, if you're passing this interaction out, you know, if you're forwarding emails left, right, and center, and you're you're just sort of passing on documents to people, you're sort of waiving that right to that confidentiality or that privilege over the documents. And so as a starting point, if you have email communication or letters from your lawyer or uh, memos from your lawyer, those things as a starting point are potentially under the bridge of privilege. But just adding your lawyer in as a as a CC on an email um, does mm-hmm. not necessarily make that document privileged. So there's nothing wrong with going through your documents and setting aside a little pile that you think might be privileged. And then you can determine with the help of some professionals whether it is or not. And, and sometimes we don't care. Sometimes we're happy to disclose it because the, the privilege issue is not a big deal. But it is just sort of important to stop and think. And the one that I see pop up a lot is legal bills. Mm -hmm. And so we'll see that the client has claimed a professional expense. They've claimed my legal bill. And so the CRA says, we want to see the invoice. Well, often the invoice will say details about what we did for you. And so if you take the whole invoice and you just send it off to CRA, have have you waived the confidentiality over the content of what it is that's being done? Sometimes you have to because sometimes the only way to prove that it's a legitimate expense is to show CRA what we did. But those types of very simple things can happen a little out of the blue. So very important to to kind of keep that keep that in check when you're figuring out your documents. Yeah, and I, I think I would just add one one small thing to that, which is that the CRA is entitled to know what the document is mm-hmm. in certain instances but not know what's in the document. So where you've narrowed in on documents with the CRA and you've said, I have not included documents that are subject to solicitor client privilege, the CRA may come back and say, I want to know what documents those are. You don't have to provide the content, but just the title of them or something like that. So there, there is a gray area where generally speaking, I would say, um, that is allowed and and you're not going to be waiving privilege by saying what the title of the document is. Tax planning memo 2012 or whatever yes. it is. Yes. 
Yeah. Well, and, and that makes me think actually about kind of the next part of this topic, which is some of the electronic filing stuff that's being requested. And I'm noticing more and more that Siri is asking for documents to be provided electronically. I actually personally prefer it. I find it much easier to upload than to be transferring USB sticks around or the old mm-hmm. days where we used to have to courier a giant package or box to CRA. I, I remember those days. Uh, so if maybe we can talk a bit about electronic submissions and if you have any tips or tricks for when you're providing documentation to CRA, some of the things that you should be doing to protect yourself. That's a good question, Amanda. I, I have to say, though, that I we are still very much in the USB transferring mm. landscape on our end. Um, okay. We haven't dealt much with the electronic upload and file transfer. We have in instances done a sort of a hub share or some kind of document sharing platform with this, with, with the department of justice. So that's kind of further down the road. So the audit though, Siri audit, I have to say, we're still kind of in the printed package realm over here. And that's, you know, and that's maybe because of the size of client. I'm not sure. So I I can't really speak too much to that. And, and of course, if we send USBs, they're encrypted always. Of so course, there's of that course. protection there. And then a password follows uh, the USB via letter um, in a, under a separate cover. Which which is excellent advice. And I mean, we're, we're noticing the electronic stuff is popping up for a lot of the individual files and for some of the smaller corporate files. And I'm guessing that probably the file size limits might impede you for a number of your clients to do the electronic uploading. What What's a little scary about the electronic uploading when people are doing it themselves and why I wanted to raise this is I find people people think, well, when I'm uploading something, there has to be some record somewhere of exactly what I gave. But the electronic upload system with CRA is a bit weird because once it's been uploaded, like there's no place that you can go that says, Mm. here's all the things I uploaded today. And so somebody will go and they'll upload and they they won't have any confirmation of what they gave. And then there becomes a dispute down the road of exactly what they provided. And versus when you're providing a couriered package or a faxed package or a USB stick, you've usually got a carbon copy of that. And there's usually a listing of what you've provided. And and, and we always did that. I'm trying to encourage people when doing this electronically, follow the exact same pattern. So have a covering letter that lists out exactly what you're providing. Um, print out each of your confirmation pages or PDF them because the confirmation pages will actually show item by item what you submitted so that if you get into a disagreement later over exactly what was given, you can you can prove what was given because sometimes things get lost um, in the ether net somewhere. <laughs> so yes. I think that's something that I've noticed has been a bit of a pickle where I'll get involved later and the client will say, well, I, I submitted all this stuff and I'll say, well, what did you submit? And we'll go on and they'll say, well, there must be something on the site, but I, I have no way of retrieving that. So just mm-hmm. a bit of a, a bit of a warning. I love the idea though of encrypting the USB, sending a password separately. I mean, this is all confidential information. So if you're, if you're doing it that way, you do want to be very careful about how you're providing the sensitive information. Yeah. And I yeah. think in terms of, so I guess more archaic ways as well. We actually use fax a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> still. And yeah. I, I don't, you know, I'm not bragging about that because there's nothing to brag about, certainly. But fax, um, you get a, you know, a, tra- a confirmation yeah. of transfer um, and then they can, you know, they can get it on the spot. So we've had dealings with CRA where 
we're going back and forth in, in a day just to kind of come to a position on something and we're faxing things back and forth because yes. it's just the quickest way to do it. Now that that was pre-COVID. So now right. I think, you know, you've indicated you're experiencing various methods of communication since COVID, which may change things a little bit. But fax is tried and true also. There's a reason why it was yeah. around for so long and it continues to be around. Not everyone has access to a fax machine, but where there is that opportunity, it, it sounds a little bit silly, but quite Oh, effective. absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like prior to COVID, we always did by fax. And what I'm finding now is for a lot of the smaller areas, like there's no one there manning the fax machine anymore. So mm. you'll send the fax, but there's no one, no one's in the office. So I'm hoping yeah. that once people start to get back, we'll have that option because it is a much quicker way of getting information out versus this more complicated uploading system. So I'm, I'm with you. Well, I I wonder if we should, if we should move kind of to the third topic, because we've talked a bit about what happens when Sierra reaches out to you, how, how you reach out back to Sierra and provide submissions. But I mean, eventually after all of this back and forth, something happens. I mean, there's, there's the end of the audit or there's the end of the request for information. And I wonder if we should talk about the different ways an audit or a request for information might end. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's always <laughs> everybody's sort of end goal in going through this, what can be, you know, quite a stressful time in, in a taxpayer's yes. life. I think there's, so as information is flowing, there's written communications back and forth. So you kind of get a series of communications or you can get a series of written communications from the CRA as they start to narrow in on what the real issue is, what they're taking off the table. But I think in that sense, the fact that they will take things off the table as time goes on because of the submissions you're making is really an important point to just chat about very briefly, which is that the taxpayer has the power to give the information, tell a story, um, be forthcoming with the information and allow the CRA to understand and then allow them to move past whatever issue they might have potentially. Mm -hmm. And that is the power of the communication. And, And so one thing we'll always advise clients and I'll advise just friends that are going through audits, um, be forthcoming, be transparent, be nice, be cooperative. And it goes a long way because the CRA auditors are just people too. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, it's not that they have some other, you know, they're just doing their job. So how do you, you know, how do you make their job easier so that they can make your job easier is really what it comes down to. It's a bit of a transaction in that sense. So as they're kind of going through your information, they might send various pieces of, of written communication, which which can culminate oftentimes both in an information request and an audit, in my experience, in a proposal letter, which is them saying, okay, thanks for all this information. Uh, these are the, these are the changes we're proposing to your file position position and your filing position. And this is what we're proposing to reassess you on. And then they'll give you sort of one last kick at the can at that stage. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that we've missed? Is there anything else that you've missed? Is there anything else you'd like to say? And, and then if you have something to say, you give submissions and then usually a final determination is made through a notice of reassessment at that stage, or if you don't, a notice of reassessment issues, and then that ends up becoming sort of the triggering document to the notice of objection, which we discussed uh, on our last podcast. I'm really glad you raised this because people always assume that an audit ends in something bad. 
But sometimes it's not. Sometimes the audit ends with or the request for information ends with, thanks so much. That's great. Nothing further. And and it actually can result in nothing. Um, yeah. So people people just don't think that that's an option. And, and that's actually a really positive way to end an audit. And this happens often. So that is definitely one way of ending it. The other way is that there might be some adjustments. There might be a bit of a bit of agreement on some things and some disagreement and other things. And then it would result in a, a notice of reassessment, which again starts this time limit. So there are different ways that this can this can go down and it doesn't always have to be bad. So I, I appreciate that. I, I wonder if we should talk briefly about, I'm going to call it settlement, um, but sometimes even at the audit stage, we can come to an agreement with Canada Revenue Agency on something. And, and yes, we'll, I wonder if we should talk a bit about that process because that's almost another potential option of how an mm-hmm. audit can end. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it's actually a very powerful tool, especially these days because of the sheer volume of audits that CRA is doing. They simply don't have time to carry matters forward across the board. And so mm-hmm. there is an appetite for the CRA to settle. Now, as you know, Amanda, in the context of tax, settlement isn't about, you know, splitting the pot and calling right. it a day. It's got to be principled. There has to be a reason based in the Income Tax Act that allows a CRA to settle. So you can't say, okay, well, I've got all these expenses. They might be capital. They might be income. Let's just take half as income, half as capital. They have to be principled in whether they're capital or income, for right. example. So. The audit settlement committee is really a powerful tool and and they they published a communique in 2019 that really outlined the entire process on how the audit settlement committee works. And the long story short of it is that you can say that you'd like to trigger the audit settlement committee process and that you would like to talk about settlement in that context. And what happens then is the CRA goes and they take your proposal of settlement to the committee, the committee decides on it and they come back to you. And that's a really, really effective way of ending it right then and there. And and this is assuming that there is no error, that you're okay with, okay, yes, I filed this wrong. And so I'm willing to you know, take the taxable income on this and, and, and that or whatever it is. If there's simply an error in the audit, then you, you really, it's difficult. I, I, can, I can see how it'd be difficult to settle, but it, it becomes a, a business question, a, an economics question, really, at the end of the day, not just a tax question. But, um, and, and so settlement ends up being very, a very effective tool at this stage, I find. And and then once you've settled, if you've gone through this more formal process, there then is usually documents that you're signing that prohibit you from appealing or objecting because you've mm-hmm. kind of made your bed. Now you need to lie in it. Um, mm-hmm. So it is important that if you're going that route, you realize you're kind of closing yourself off to resolution in any other way on those mm-hmm. issues or sometimes on any of the issues um, in the audit. So it is mm-hmm. a, a rather final stage, but it can be really cost effective to deal with this at the front end, like you've said, versus at the later point. And so if you don't settle or if you don't resolve things at audit and you end up with some adjustments, you get a notice of reassessment. Mm-hmm. I mean, our other podcast episode, we talked a lot more about the appeal process, but mm-hmm. I think maybe we can we can just kind of reiterate again some of the deadlines because 
that's the thing I find gets missed so often is that that time clock starts ticking again. So if you could maybe just address some of the deadlines for objections and appeals. Yeah. So if you, as you said, and, and aptly, if you go through the audit settlement process, you in essence sign a release where you can't, where you cannot, you've, you've given up your appeal rights. And so of course, once that's happened, there is no timeline that starts at that time. If in the normal course, a notice of reassessment issues after an audit or a request for information, then you have 90 days from the notice of reassessment to file what's called a notice of objection. And that's still an internal CRA process where your file gets transferred into a division of the CRA called CRA Appeals, and you're assigned a CRA Appeals Officer, and you go through a similar type of information sharing and submission exchange. So the CRA appeals officer will ask you questions, will ask you for submissions. Um, You can provide, oftentimes it's some of the same information um, and additional information that comes to light or whatever. And that process will end in either another notice of reassessment, which means some adjustments are made, a notice of confirmation, which means that no adjustments have been made since the notice of reassessment that, that the audit resulted in or the request for information resulted in, or they might vacate the reassessment altogether saying, you're right, so sorry, didn't mean for this to be the case, that's the end of it. And so in the case of a confirmation and a notice of reassessment, you can either, if you get another notice of reassessment, then it triggers the 90 days again, which you can object to, or you can go straight to a notice of appeal, which then triggers the Tax Court of Canada process and the Department of Justice. And that's another 90-day time period. So I think it's really important because I feel like a lot of times people will get these reassessments or confirmations and you kind of put it on the shelf because it's not a pleasant document. And so it's so important that you calculate not just from the date that it arrived in your hands, but that you actually look at what the date is on the document. And usually it's up on that type right-hand corner or for a notice of confirmation lately, I've noticed it's at the very bottom. They'll say dated as of the blank day of blank 2022, and then they sign it. And you have to calculate your 90 days from there. And there is there is an ability, at least at the internal appeals level, to get a slight extension on that if you can provide a reason. So you can, of course, ask for – you can go on your hands and knees and ask for pity and relief um, for an additional year. Um, but you have to have a reason. And it's discretionary. So CRA can deny you. But you do want to get those in, and there's a prescribed form you can use um, for the objection process. So I'll pop that in the in the show notes in case it's of help to anyone. But it's it's very important to make sure you're kind of meeting those deadlines because once they're gone, there's there's less we can do to help you out in that instance. Yeah, and I think keeping in mind too that as unpleasant as it is to get to get a reassessment, and I chuckled a little bit, Amanda, when you said that. People sometimes put it on a shelf and pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> and you can't blame them for that because oh, generally I know. they're not that happy about it. I think, though, recognizing that fitting within the timelines, getting your objection in, it, preserving your appeal rights is really important. And it's quite a long runway. So mm-hmm. you might get a reassessment today. You don't like it. Put in the notice of objection, which, as you say, Amanda, as a prescribed form, it's very easy to fill out. and then. 
once that's in, it's, you know, it's about a year until mm-hmm. a appeals officer is assigned. So you have a year to, to ascertain, okay, is this worth the fight? Is it not? Do I want to pay? Do I not? Do I want to fight? And you kind of have that ability to go through that decision-making process without losing any of your rights. And that's, it's so important. And I think if, if everyone just took that extra step in filing that notice of objection, it, it gives you some time to really think about what you want to do and how you want to handle it. That's a good point because it's important to remember that it's not final. Like once you've filed your objection, it doesn't mean you can't pull it back. And, mm. and it is very user-friendly in that you don't need a lawyer to file it, um, although it, it's helpful if it's a more complicated issue that you have your tax advisor assist you. But you can change your mind. You can use it as a way to to give yourself some extra time. And then at the end, if you decide you don't want to pursue it, you can always pull it back and there's no detriment to you. But one of the big perks is it gives a little bit of time to gather up some funds. So, you know, you you are going to owe the taxes um, once you've received the reassessment. But if you file an objection, uh, it helps to except in certain circumstances. It helps to push that out until the objection has been dealt with. Interest will keep piling up on the tax, but at least you can avoid having collections officers calling you. That's for income tax. If you got GST, you're you're up the creek. But um, for income tax, you can you can at least uh, get a bit of relief. So sometimes I've had clients do it because they just need an extra like six months to gather up the funds, mm-hmm. and they just want to buy themselves some time, and so that then they can be ready to complete their payment all at once. And so that's another important consideration. Or you need time to maybe gather some more documents, or or figure out if there is something else that you can argue. So it is a bit of a time saving or or a time creation device that you can use. Mm -hmm. And I think to your point of some people feel like they're, they are going to pay the tax debt. They just need a bit more time. An alternative to that. So an alternative to filing a notice of, of objection in order to get that time is to get into a payment plan with collections. So for whatever reason you miss the objections deadline, or you just simply don't want to file an objection Collections is going to be calling you pretty soon about payment. And at that stage, there is the ability for a taxpayer to say, listen, I've got this much money. I'll pay you, you know, let's take a $50,000 tax bill for argument's sake. Say somebody has $5,000 in cash, but doesn't have any more savings. And they say, okay, I'm going to pay you. The taxpayer says to the collections, I can pay $5,000 right now and I can pay $1,000 every month for the next X months, uh, 45 Mm -hmm. months or whatever it is. So that's something that collections might accept, might not accept. I mean, the collections officers have the discretion to say, okay, that's fine. That's not fine or whatever. But we have on occasion gotten into payment plans with collections um, because our clients just don't have the money up Mm -hmm. front. And so $5,000 $5,000 to collections today with a commitment to pay is better than no no money up front yes. or no yes. commitment to pay. And so there's that ability too. In any event, interest accrues um, and it's a lot of interest. So it's not, it you know, it's not all upside on the, on the pushing out of the payment, but some people just need some extra time and that's a good way to get it. Well, and great advice about kind of handling it 
as soon as possible. And I think that advice ripples through in all of this, that in, in responses to audit and dealing with the reassessment and dealing with collections, you are never helping yourself by throwing it in the corner and pretending it's not happening. The sooner that you can react and the sooner that you can phone back, the more doors are open to you and the more options available to you. Um, so you know, don't let that sit and fester because it becomes much harder to deal with the longer you go. Well, this was great. I, I as as I expected, we were able to chat for quite a while on some of these topics. There's just there's so much that you can pick at in these particular areas, um, and we could probably do another episode with all the other advice we have. But I really appreciate you popping back on to to give us some of your thoughts on on the more practical side of dealing with CRA. Yeah, you're welcome, Amanda. I I think your content's really amazing, and I think that. The more information that's available to people that are dealing with these things in their day-to-day life, the more empowered they are to just um, get things going, get things organized, and and not approach audit or anything else from a fear uh, stance. You know, yes. it doesn't have to be a fearful experience. It can actually be an okay experience if if you're if you're empowered with the tools, if you're given the tools to use it. So hopefully, this will this will help. Um, people kind of understand the process. Well, and unfortunately, we can't talk to everybody individually because we'd love to talk to all of the potential clients, but we can't. So this is our way of of trying to reach everybody or other people that may not otherwise be able to use our services. And hopefully this this helps some people that are listening today to, to sort of know how to tackle things when they get uh, the next communication from CRA. So thank you so much, Sophie. I know you've got a crazy week happening right now. You're in the midst of some, some big files. So I appreciate you taking the time to stop and chat with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, that is all we have time for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope we gave you some food for thought or at least made you laugh. Please see the show notes for any resource material that we reference throughout the episode and to find out more about my amazing guest today. And if you'd like to learn more about any of the topics that we covered on today's podcast or about other topics relating to tax in general, I do invite you to sign up for my monthly newsletter, Musings of a Tax Chick, And follow me on Instagram. My handle is at tax.chick. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and also click subscribe so you make sure you never miss a new episode. Please note that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your legal advisor for specific advice.